This is attorney Andy Markintel and attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the attorneys for freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going, Mark? It's going great, man. Coming off an awesome weekend. My Patriots won for a change, and I'm excited about that. The weather's great. Life is good, and uh, I'm so excited about this show. I've been waiting for this show for a long time, so I want to get right to it. All right. Well, let's start before we hop in with a summary of what this movement's all about. Go ahead. All right. So Live and Let Live is... uh, what I would say the effort of the reasonable people of the world to try to get the world on the right track. What does that mean? We want to increase human happiness while decreasing human suffering. How do we do that? Well, uh, it's called the Live and Let Live movement for a reason. We think this is an important idea that we need to get our brains around. And so very important and central to our movement is this concept that uh, legal rules are different than ethical rules. And legal rules, those are importantly different because if you violate one of those rules, there's going to be a societal consequence. Things can happen to you, like you could be put in jail. And so legal rules ought to be calibrated around what we call the live and let live principle, which basically could be summarized as don't be an aggressor. But that's a little broad, so we break it down and say, what's an aggressor? Well, an aggressor is somebody who initiates force against another person or their property. Somebody who engages in fraud or coercion is also violating the live and let live rule. Or somebody who does something that creates a what we lawyers might call a substantial risk of harm uh, to another person or their property. Basically doing something that puts another person at a grave risk of harm, another person or their property. And we think that this rule uh, is a good rule, and it ought to apply to everybody, no matter where you're born, what color your skin is, what holidays you celebrate, what language you speak. It applies to every person and even groups that they form, corporations, governments, nobody, no group is exempt from not violating the live and let live legal rule. But then there are ethical issues. Um, Ethical issues are different because you can violate ethical rules and there's no formal societal consequences. I mean, people might not want to do business with you or be friends with you or something, and that's fine. Um, And so in this space, because we recognize we we all don't agree on moral issues, we kind of stick our big toes into the ethics pond by saying, look, be open-minded towards other people and tolerant of other people and how they live. And voluntary kindness is an important aspirational value. And basically, be a civilized person. We should be able to agree to disagree. Something we we may do today, I don't know. Um, But we do these things because we're trying to inspire people. We're a peace movement, right? So we're trying to inspire people in ways that are conducive to fermenting peace, which is to increase human happiness and decrease human suffering. So that's a little summary of what the Live and Let Live movement is about, and we're building it out with chapters all over the world. We had a really fantastic and inspiring meeting on Saturday with the leaders of the different chapters. We have at least 10 countries in Africa, many, many different countries in Europe and in Australia and in the United States, and the movement hasn't yet kicked off. It kicks off in March of 2023 with a conference probably in Hawaii, and then to be followed by other conferences around the world. And so uh, there's a little summary of uh, the Live and Let Live movement. And if you want to keep an eye on it, go to liveandletlive.org. There's all kinds of great information about everything that he talked about. But let's get to this guest right now. So I should give a little bit of a disclaimer here or a little bit of background on this. Mark, I remember about three weeks ago, you said something to me to the extent of, do you know who Matthew Sands is? And do you know what my disagreement with him is? I think you were trying to figure out whether or not you had CC'd me on an email exchange. That's right. I said, no, I don't know who that is. You said, 
Perfect. I'm not going to tell you. We're going to have them on the podcast, and we're going to hash out an issue yeah. that we currently have a disagreement on, and we're going to get your reaction in real time. So I don't know what I'm in for today, just as you don't, um, dear listeners. So let's get Matthew on the line. This uh, is the founder of a project called The Nations of Sanity, and it's based in the UK. Matthew, how you doing today, man? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell a little bit about what the Nations of Sanity project is? Uh, yeah, I mean, not too dissimilar to what Mark described with the Live and Let Live project. Um, I mean, the Nations of Sanity project is built on the assertion that crime, and therefore also law, can be objectively defined by the concept of individual self-ownership. And in addition to that, we're built on the assertion that the only way to create a truly free society with truly equal rights is to is to establish the non-aggression principle as the law through a universal peace agreement, basically making it the terms of peace between all people. Uh, more specifically, it's a three-part peace agreement that we present, um, which breaks out down into part one is the basic agreement, part two is our uh, what we call our lines in the sand where we segregate the what we call the black and white from the gray area which connects to our uh, debate here um, and part three is about rightful ownership which is basically ratifying property rights through the non-aggression principle how do people check out the nations of sanity if they're interested where do they go on the internet uh, there is a website, nationsofsanity.com, and a YouTube channel also called Nations of Sanity. Um, and there's also a Facebook page, which I post content to as well. So, uh, yeah, they can contact me and uh, see, see articles and videos on all of those sites. Well, based on everything you just said, I just can't imagine you guys have too much important stuff to disagree about here. I mean, he's, he hit some major points that I think are, are important to the Live and Let Live movement. What's the nature of the disagreement here? I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah, well, actually, let me first say um, part of the reason I was so excited that you didn't know anything about it and we get to talk about it in real time is because uh, I'm, I remain open-minded on all issues at all times. And I think if Matt has a better approach, I, I can assure you I want to adopt it. I think Matt's approach is a good approach, and uh, it may very well be a workable approach. And uh, I, I should also say at the beginning, it's an approach that I believe is certainly tolerate, tolerated under the big tent of live and let live. So I, I would consider Matt Sands a live and let liver, even though we have this sort of disagreement on implementation. So let me try. We talked before uh, the show started, and I was going to try to do my best to do a fair job at explaining what the disagreement is. And then we'll give Matt an opportunity to say whether I got it right or whether I got it wrong. So when Matt talks about these black and white areas, what he means is, uh, and we'll just take a white area. A white area is something that we can all agree, reasonable people all agree, does not violate the what we'll call the live and let live principle. I should point out that Matt sometimes refers to that principle as the non-aggression principle, but they basically mean the same thing. So an example of a white area might mean, might be something, say uh, competent adults uh, peacefully smoking marijuana in their backyard, nobody's driving, uh, nobody's doing anything to put anyone else at risk. This is an example of something that we might say is in a white area. This doesn't violate the principle. Uh, the black area is an area that everybody agrees definitely violates the principle, right? If I walk up to another human being and uh, put a gun in their face and say, give me your money or your life, uh, I'm definitely violating the rule here. No reasonable person would, would say, no, no, this isn't clear. That's a black area definitely for sure prohibited. But then there's what we call gray areas, areas in the middle where, you know, it's not so clear. Reasonable minds can disagree. 
There are many examples of things in gray areas, like, for example, the question of what's a competent adult? I mean, should this be 18 or 17 or 16 or 15? We can all agree that eight years old isn't a competent adult. In 30 years old, absent mental health issues is definitely a competent adult, but there's definitely a gray area. There are many other gray areas, like, for example, what constitutes a substantial risk of harm, right? If we're neighbors and you're doing something at your, on your property where you're storing chemicals or something, um, you know, the reasonable minds might disagree about whether or not you're creating a substantial risk to me. And so how we deal with the gray areas is the nature of the disagreement. Um, to be clear, my position is, is in these gray areas, because reasonable minds can disagree, um, what we do is say, look, the local communities uh, ought to be the ones who, through whatever mechanism they choose, they should adopt whatever rule they think makes sense to them in the local communities and then apply that rule in the local community to everybody who lives there, even people who take a different position and say, wait a second, I don't agree that the, that the live and that live rule should apply this way. Matt's position is basically, look, and, and I want to steel man his position here because I think his position makes sense and is a, is a fair and reasonable position. Matt's position is, look, um, we don't want to impose a rule on somebody unless we're absolutely sure because we're making it a law now. And uh, unless we can say beyond a reasonable doubt that this activity in the gray area violates the rule, the live and let live rule or the non-aggression principle beyond a reasonable doubt. If we can't say that beyond a reasonable doubt, well, then we can't have a rule in this area. And uh, people will be left to sort of figure it out on their own or make voluntary agreements or go to arbitration or whatever they do. But we cannot have a law in the gray area. So for the entire gray area, we don't have a law. We let people figure it out. And, there are, and then he, I'm sure, presents different ways that uh, how people could work these out. And of course, I, I can see there are ways that people can voluntarily resolve disputes outside the law. So I think that encapsulates the disagreement that we have. Is, and, and so I'll, get, I'll turn it over to Matt and say, Matt, did I fairly explain the, our two positions and exactly what the dispute is? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I might add a few little caveats to it, but Please. yeah, generally speaking, I think, um, well, I mean, only really just that I just would want to clarify the distinction between rules and laws. And and obviously, uh, yeah, I mean, you are correct, but I'm saying that only the, what we would call the black and white, that beyond a reasonable doubt, certain that, that violations can be enforced as law through this universal peace agreement that we're proposing but i'm not against having laws that do go within the gray area i'm sorry rules that do go within the gray areas as part of voluntary agreements so for example if you've got a collective even if it's a community-sized collective or even a nation-sized collective i don't it's not about the size it's about the nature then you can have like like a membership, like a membership of a club where we all agree to additional rules that go beyond and, and do uh, provide that clarification within the grey and do provide the arbitration methods that we all agreed to, whether it's a court system, whether it's a community council, jury, judge, whatever, we all are agreeing to beforehand. And that way, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, when you say about some of the solutions that I would present, I would present some of your solutions as those, but I would just do it within the confines of saying, look, the community doesn't have the authority to dictate 
within areas that they are acknowledging are grey areas. They only have the authority that every individual has, which is to enforce the non-aggression principle with a reasonable certainty that they are doing so, you know? And this is why I have to say that we need, I mean, obviously we can't be, there is no absolute certainty. That's why we have that beyond a reasonable doubt standard in criminal law today. And, and that's also why we apply the innocent until proven guilty approach to um, you know criminal convictions as well. Because at the end of the day, if we're not certain that the force we're using to enforce a law is justified because it is you know within the realms of how we've already set out what is morally justified, then we are by our own standards violating that same principle. So this is why, uh, and often when it comes to some of these gray areas, the concept of self-ownership does allude to who has that kind of discretionary authority. Like for example, age of consent, for me, that's not the community's domain, unless it's voluntarily handed over to the community by the people that, whose domain it is. For me, the person who has, would have the authority to dictate within the grey, not beyond the black and white, but within the grey for parental, any kind of parental aspect, including age of consent, would be the parent themselves, because they are the one who own that duty of care as the rightful guardians of the child in question. So let me. Sorry, I went on a little bit. No, there. no, that's <laughs> fine. I think that's perfect. And so I, I'd like to respond to some of those things before Andy chimes in, and then maybe you can respond to what I have to say because I, I yeah. want to sort of deliver why I think, and I very, I really appreciate your position here. And let me tell you why I appreciate your position so much because you want to be very, very careful, right? Before we import something into the law, what you, what I hear you saying is, look, Mark, when we put something into the law, this is a big deal. We're forcing people to comply to it now. And I want to be absolutely sure, in fact, beyond a reasonable doubt, sure, that the law, that the principles actually being violated before we force somebody into it. And I, I can't just, it's hard for me to find the words to convey how much respect I have for that position because I, also do not want to, I don't want to force anybody to do anything, really. I just want to, other than to comply with the principle. So let me respond to a couple things you said. First off, you said, hey, Mark, you know, in the gray areas, we can have voluntary agreements. You're right about that. This is an evasion of our, of our, of our dispute because people can always make agreements in any area they want. Um, and so anytime somebody makes an agreement, well, now we have consent. And so now that's pretty much not the situation we're talking about. We're talking about a situation where there is not a prior agreement and we're trying to force somebody into it. You've also mentioned the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And let me, exp here's where we start diverging. I love the beyond a reasonable doubt standard for criminal law. And the reason I love it is because we in this area want to skew the errors. And what I mean by that is we believe that it's better that 10 guilty people go free than one innocent gets convicted. And because of that, we use the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. But when you import this into the gray areas like you want to, this creates a hidden injustice. And let me try to break this out with an example. Imagine the example we used earlier where Andy is storing uh, some dangerous chemicals on his property and I'm the neighbor and I say, hey, look, this is a substantial risk. Maybe I can prove that actually I'm at a substantial risk by what we call a preponderance standard. So. I can show in a court case even that Andy actually is more than 50% creating a substantial risk to me and my kids and my home. No action can be taken under the Matt Sands approach. I could even show 
by clear and convincing evidence, a higher standard of proof that Andy is violating the rule as to me. He is creating a substantial risk of harm to me. But under the Matt Sands approach, I'm still stuck. This creates injustice on my side because there's... I recognize we don't want to be too harsh in telling Andy what the rule is. But on the other hand, now we're, we're being too lenient in creating victims out in the community who can prove by clear and convincing evidence that the rule is actually being violated. But no action can be taken because we can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And the issue of whether the rule is being violated is qualitatively different than the issue of whether somebody is going to be punished for a crime. So your example about parents, this is a great example to talk about because let's just say we establish that the gray area is somewhere, let's just say between 18 and 14. And I'm just throwing numbers out there. Let's just say, look, above 18, look, everybody agrees this is a competent adult and below 14, everybody agrees this is not a competent adult. And Matt says, let the parents decide. Okay, what if the parents decide that uh, 14 is a competent adult, and we've decided because they're a competent adult that uh, we're going to let them appear in porn videos and make a bunch of money now. Um, and the rest of the community says, look, we think 17 or 18 is the, is the rule. And now we got parents taking their 14-year-old daughter and presenting their 14-year-old daughter in porn videos to make money, and there's nothing we can do to stop that. This is the only person in the community who thinks 14 years old is the age of consent, and everyone else in the community thinks that 17 years old is the proper age of consent, and yet nothing can be done. I think it allows injustices on the other side. I also think, like Walter Block said, when I was surprised to hear him say this in his video, and I sent this to you, and I know you watched it, where Walter said, look, I consider myself an anarchist, but as an anarchist, we believe in laws and we're law abiding. And, and what Matt Sands is presenting sounds like chaos because sure, if people have agreements in advance, no problem. But if they don't have agreements in advance, imagine the situation back to me and Andy where Andy's storing the dangerous chemicals. We're going to force this situation to come to a head because I can say, look, I can show uh, by clear and convincing evidence that Andy is doing something to create a substantial risk of harm. It's any matter of time. Those dangerous chemicals are going to leak out into my property and my kids and create huge risks of harm. I'm going to charge over to Andy's property, trespass, take those chemicals, clean up that mess and take them away. And Andy's going to say, wait a second, Mark. You violated the rule by trespassing and grabbing my chemicals. I'm going to say, no, no, no. You violated the rule by creating a substantial risk of harm. And so under the under what I'm presenting, the community is going to have to decide whether or not Andy creates a substantial risk of harm. And if so, um, and assume, assuming that's a reasonable judgment, then that will be enforced, and Andy's the one who's in trouble. Uh, under your standard, I'm not sure how we resolve it here at all, and I think that, that makes it very difficult. So just to put a bow on what I'm saying, what I'm saying is what you are entitled to is a reasonable construction of the live and let live principle. Not your per particular construction, but a reasonable construction. And so the world doesn't have to be exactly the way I think it should be. But what I want, and I think what the goal of our movement is, is to get a, at least a reasonable construction enforced everywhere. So I think that maybe encapsulates the difference in why I think, while I respect your rule, and it may work, and I, and I think that, and I would encourage you, by the way, to write something 
and say, look, live and let live uh, an alternate theory. Here's how I think. Uh, here's why I think Mark is wrong. And here's why I think this is a better approach. And uh, we would welcome that in the live and let live movement. And there are yet other approaches as well on how to implement. They should all be part of the big tent of live and let live. What, what's your response to, I guess, what I've said? Then we'll let Andy weigh in. Yeah, I definitely want to hear him defend his position against some of these examples yeah yeah well yeah i mean there's a, there a few different examples there um i mean for example like with the and we're, and we're obviously both agreeing that we're talking within a gray area like both our movements need to establish these black and white limits yes. like with the age of consent yep, where community or parent whoever we agree is deciding within the gray area we agree that we both agree that we're having to set these universal black and white lines that neither can go past yep you know you're definitely a child here you're definitely an adult here kind of thing so what i'm saying is is working within what we're admitting is a gray area the horror scenario that you created of this you know these irresponsible parents parents that are quite happy to abandon their child as soon as they're within the gray area to do so um, and yeah give them over to porn or whatever whatever else what how is that danger any less of a problem with the community you know like i can imagine living in a you know a culture where for example that might try and be forced upon me you know like arranged marriages and all of this sort of stuff there's plenty of cultures where um, they like to push the age of consent down as much as they can possibly do. And when it comes to who's going to be the proper guardian for these children, apart from the fact that I think it's more likely to be the parent that's going to have the child. I know there are exceptions, but there's it's more likely to be exceptions within governments and, and communities and whatever else we're having overseeing it in a collective sense um, than the actual direct parent. I know there are abusive parents and all the rest of it, but like I say, we have our black and white limits where we can step in and say, okay, now you're now it's child abuse. But when it comes to the gray areas of parenting, we let the parent decide. You know, when it when 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 we're when we are ourselves admitting that it's a gray area, like I say, when they're crossing that black and white, we both are agreeing that we step in. But when we are ourselves saying it's a gray area, we're saying, okay, well then it's the parents, you know, who decide. And the reason why I object to you saying, well, why can't the communities decide? Is because I'm like, well, from my perspective. The idea of the, I'm not just arbitrary saying, oh, I think the parents should decide because I think they'd be the best people to decide. I'm saying they should decide because based on this principle that we've already invoked, the the the, the live and let live principle or the non-aggression principle, whatever you want to call it, as far as I'm concerned, it's the principle that comes from the concept of individual self-ownership, that we have right and responsibility over only our own selves. Now, as the parent of my child, I have a duty of care i own a duty of care to that child that the rest of the community doesn't have so how i go about um fulfilling that duty of care within the gray areas is at my discretionary authority you can step in when you say no now you've stepped over that line you're definitely you know going because this is the thing we all have different ways in which we think we should bring up our children and we could very strenuously disagree they're well too strict or they're well too lenient or they're spoiling them or they're making them fat or you know there's so many areas where we could disagree that we might call gray areas but my point is is because they're gray areas then we have to trust that the parent is acting with that implicit consent of the child that they have you know, fulfilling their duty of care as the rightful guardians of that child. And only, again, only when we can be reasonably certain that they are not doing that and they are stepping beyond that and actually, you know, now it's we can say, no, now that's child abuse. Now we can use force. Now we can take your child from you. Now we can do those things. But my problem is, is when it comes to... and. and 
I, I, for me, that rings true, not just on an intellectual level, which is the main area of debate, which is where we obviously should be having these discussions, but also even on an instinctive level, which I know isn't where we should be having it, but instinctively, I know that the person who decides those grey areas for how I raise my child, including when, you know, like I say, within the grey areas, when they have come of age and I no longer am responsible for them and they are now their own responsible consenting adult, that is something that only I can really decide, again, within the grey, within that universal standard that we've set, that still has that black and white limit. Like I say, this is my pushback to Walter Block's comment about the chaos thing, is like, well, we don't have chaos because we still have laws. We still have the black and white laws, and we still have the potential to create better standards of the grey areas. And a lot of your arguments are good arguments for establishing those things, saying, you know, it would be a good idea to have collectives and communities where we do agree to have these other rules and regulations. But in the absence of those things, we still got this universal peace agreement. We've still got these lines in the sand. We can still protect the child below the age of 14, and we can still protect the adult above the age, you know, whatever we set the limit of, 18, 20, whatever. You know, what I'm saying is we can still protect, protect beyond there. And within that, if it's gray area, yes, unfortunately, there's going to be a situation where we're going to have to tolerate gray areas. But when it comes to tolerating gray areas and giving like, OK, well, who's got the right, you know, to have that final save within the gray area in the case of the parent versus the community for me self-ownership, the, the, the concept that we're deriving all our principles from in the first place clearly puts that in the realm of the parent. It clearly does not give any such authority to the community. And even though it's such a small area, like Live and Let Live and Nations of Sanity are so almost identical, particularly if you look at it like with squinted eyes, you know, we look the same kind of thing. But the devil's in the detail. And this is a detail that I do think you guys are getting wrong. Obviously, you think I'm getting it wrong. But but my point is, is from my perspective, and perhaps you can explain to me where you think I've got this wrong, from my perspective, just looking at what's the most consistent with the principle and the concept of self-ownership, and for me, the parent thing just demonstrates it perfectly, who has the right to have that discretionary power within the grey areas of raising my child and making those dictatorial decisions, whether it's age of consent, whether it's getting a vaccine, things like that, it's me. And I, I really can't see the argument for saying it's the community. I think what you say as to parents... Um carries a lot of weight frankly but uh, i didn't hear anything about the example i gave which was andy storing the dangerous chemicals i mean the issue of parents making decisions over children i i'm very sympathetic to that argument i again i think the root of the disagreement is what i'm saying is you only are entitled to a reasonable construction of the rule and by definition anything in that gray area is a reasonable construction of the rule and so the community gets to decide which they get to select which reasonable construction of the rule are we going to make the law in our local community. And you're saying, no, 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 you have a right to have the rule implemented only when it can be shown beyond a reasonable doubt that the rule is being violated. And I think if you said, what is the heart of our dispute? I think that's the heart of our dispute. In fact, I I uh, also spoke with um, Stefan Kinsella, and you know whether Walter Block or Stefan agree with our position is not a conclusive thing. It's just uh, sort of talking to people who understand this stuff very well, and we're both certainly free to disagree. I mean, look, Walter disagrees with Murray Rothbard as well. Nobody agrees on everything 100%. 
Um, but Stefan also agrees with that part of it. He says, look, Mark, I don't think people have a right to anything other than a reasonable construction of the rule. If you accept that, then I think what I'm presenting makes sense. If you reject that and say no, uh, you have a right to have the rule imposed on you only when it can be shown beyond a reasonable doubt, then they're in your camp. Is that? Would you agree with that ca sort of characterization of our dispute? Well, my, my problem with that is... The, like, like, like you say, over oh, the grey area. For me, the grey areas are, by definition, is where we have the reasonable doubt. And yeah. like, I mean, if it's good enough for criminal law, not that I necessarily want to, you know, because obviously there's a lot of things that exist in criminal law that, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously a status concept. No, no, I, let me say, but, I agree with you on what you just said. On. You don't even have to. If it's in the grey area, there is a reasonable doubt because reasonable minds disagree. So by definition, so there's it, a reasonable so doubt. So would it? So would it not then be criminally reckless of us to use force when by our own admission, by our own standards, not what somebody else is saying, but by our own standards, we don't have reasonable certainty? If beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard that we must meet before we can impose the rule, then you're right. If, on the other hand, what you're entitled to is a reasonable construction of the rule, well, then you're wrong, and you, you might say, look, we can't say with beyond a reasonable doubt that the rule applies. It's like in my situation with Andy, maybe I can't say beyond a reasonable doubt he's creating a substantial risk, but I can say it by, a, by clear and convincing it. Like, for example, if you assign numbers to this, if you say beyond a reasonable doubt is 95% sure, uh, and I can't say 95% sure that those dangerous chemicals are going to leak out onto my property, and therefore we can't do anything about it in the in the nations of sanity. But I can say 94% sure, for example, that Andy's going to uh, leak this out, and I think that's substantial. So we would have to change the definition of a substantial risk and say beyond a reasonable doubt type of a risk in order for this to occur, in order to comport with what you're saying. And I, I think that's too high a standard. I think if Andy is creating a 94% chance of a really serious harm, what if he's got something that's going to explode or something like that? Before I can do anything, then I think I'm now a victim of having the rule not applied, and he's trespassing on me, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I think that's well, unjust. Okay, yeah, sorry, yeah, I did forget to address that that uh, that example. Um, I mean, the thing is, is I mean, there are other factors that would come into play. I mean, I would need no, more information if, like, if you were bringing that to me in like a NAP court or something like that, and say, well, where's the NAP law applying here, and you know, where's the and, you know, like I say, you were saying we're agreeing that it's within this gray area concept of overall proximity and harm and all the rest of it. But there's obviously still this dispute because he's not happy. And, and I, I was like, well, OK, but there's a few things that need to be established. Obviously, we're assuming that they're not part of some collective where they've got this arrangement right. ahead of time. OK, so who was there first? Because obviously somebody was there first. And if... Because this is a little bit like, and this relates to other things like building an airport and anything that's like a potential hazard or interference to you, but might be in that grey area, not like a direct definite threat of pointing a gun, but, you know, but could, you know, a bit of noise pollution or, you know, like anything that goes into that grey area. And it, this applies to the explosion thing as well, is who's there first. And again, this has come back to the self-ownership thing, because I don't get to move next to an airport and complain about the noise. Why not? I don't get to I don't get to move, move next to Andy and complain that he is in that grey area of violating me with his stored explosive if he was already there storing his explosives and that was already established. Do you know what I'm saying? So 
again, I'm, I'm always pulling it back to self-ownership. I'm always pulling it back to the idea that we're all equal. None of us have any authority that goes beyond anybody else. And based on that, it's a case of like, you know, like if we were both going to stand in a spot, if I'm standing there first, then I obviously have that domain, not because I've got some divine right to it, because if you were there first, you'd be allowed to stand there and I couldn't push you off. It, it's all, I know it sounds like, oh, who comes that who's there first doesn't sound very sophisticated, but it is consistent with self-ownership because if we both have equal rights to something, if we both have equal right to store explosives in an area, then the person that goes there and establishes that activity first would be the person that would have the right to do that. So within that grey area, that's who's got that discretionary authority. Like I say, self-ownership doesn't always... You know, self-ownership with our consensus of, you know, re reality itself and that concept, you know, gives us this kind of, you know, low resolution that we can, get, we can use for our black and white standards. It might not tell us exactly where we draw the lines in the grey area, but it does often tell us who has the authority to draw that line in the grey area. Like, you know, with the parent v community, it's the parent. With Andy versus you, it's whoever's there first. Well, let's talk the about the whoever's there first, because there's actually a common law property doctrine here called coming to the nuisance, which is what you're referring to. And this has been recognized. You're moving to the nuisance. I reject this doctrine. Uh, imagine, and I'll give you an example of why. Imagine uh, Andy and I, and I'll make Andy the bad guy again. Andy and I uh, each have uh, pieces of property next to each other. And Andy's doing something on his property where he's trespassing pollution over to uh, my property. And he's been doing this for 20 years now. And uh, nobody's complaining because the owner of that piece of property, you know, hasn't really done anything or doesn't care or whatever. And now the owner sells to me. Does Andy get to continue to trespass across my property uh, because simply because I moved there and he has been trespassing all these years? I would say no. Just because you've been trespassing on somebody's property all these years gives you no right to continue to trespass on my property. So I would say Andy doesn't get to continue to trespass even though I he was there first and I bought the property later. Now, there are concepts in property law uh, like called adverse possession or prescriptive easements that allow these things that say, hey, if the if the owner of the property didn't complain, then sorry, he becomes the new owner or something like that or has an easement to continue trespassing. I don't necessarily agree with that based on property rights, based on exactly the same things you you are stating. I don't think that you acquire an ownership interest in someone's property just because you've been trespassing all this time on somebody's property. I, I reject that doctrine, and that sort of flows from this idea that there's a statute of limitations. In other words, the owner could have complained uh, but didn't, and now the statute of limitations is passed. I don't think that's consistent with our theory of property owners. So in this, in this case, uh, I'm sort of the more absolutist on property rights than you are because it sounds like you're saying, look, uh, sorry, the new property owner is stuck with the noise from the airport or the stink from the cow farm or the trespass from the other guy just because he was there first. And I, I reject that. But I also say even with that, we still need to figure it out, don't we? We still need to have some rule in this area. If we don't have prior agreement, how are we going to resolve it? Well, the thing is, Mark, I, I mean, I would love to use a lot of what you said as a great sales pitch for the voluntary collectives that I then present as something that we should have. We're but, in agreement but, here. Again, We're in agreement but, here. Yeah. But again, but on that foundation that I've already laid out of the non-aggression principle as law. And like I say, the I just feel like the implications of that are quite clear with regards to how we approach the grey areas. And I mean, the, the, the example you gave was 
cleverly complicated because of <laughs> it was almost like so if I let him into my house I mean and also it was working within the gray areas as well because obviously I mean you know if if, if I it's like with the details of that I'm thinking well okay well has he acquired some kind of quasi ownership because the previous owner basically gave him that and then again this is obviously like like I say like why would why do you get to buy a property next to an airport that's already there and then get to say, this airport's creating a new... You know I mean? What I'm saying is, is it's like, well, they were already there. They weren't violating you. You came to that. Now, the example you gave was a little bit different because that was basically where someone saying, okay, well, I'm allowing someone to use my property. When I sell it to you, obviously, you're not going to allow them to use your property. So that's a slightly different scenario to coming to the nuisance, if you know what I mean, because then that's going into the black and white violation of them violating your property, you know? I can understand where there would be a dispute if it's kind of like grey area as to whether they are violating your property. It's a bit different to like someone who used to let them in their house, they sell you their house, and now you're not letting this person in their house, as opposed to like, say an area of like the end of your garden that they used to walk through or something that might be a little less intrusive and maybe a little bit more open to interpretation as to whether it is actually your property if it like sort of blends into the forest behind it or something like that you know so there are sort of scenarios I was trying to think in my head as to how that might go both ways but generally speaking the property rights still applies validly you know like a, you know if, it, like like i say to make it a little bit more black and white if it was if i was letting someone into my house but i sell my house to you unless i put some kind of buyer's agreement on by the way you've got to let this guy into your house because yes. he's been coming here for 20 years right. you know but then it's part of a voluntary agreement again yes. and i know that's not necessarily part of our debate but the reason i mentioned about wanting to clarify that that's there as an option is because you know like this idea that oh we've got chaos it's like well we can you know we can make arrangements you know we can negotiate things peacefully and not everything not every agreement has to have the threat of force that we do with law law enforcement behind it so that is it's important to understand that that option is always available to us but even in the absence of that we've got our black and white limits and then we've got what I would call is the most objectively objective as possible approach to the grey areas based on the concept that we've already established we're working off, which is the idea that everyone has right over only themselves. My problem is, is like the authority you're giving to the community is arbitrary. It's not based on self-ownership. The authority I'm giving to the parent in the in the case of the parental consent or the person that was there first in the case of the dispute over the explosives and or, you know, all these sort of things, I'm always basing it on self-ownership. Well, what would self-ownership dictate in this case? And usually it provides an answer, at least with regard, even if it's just saying, okay, well, it's a grey area, but the person who would have the right to say, you know, within that grey area would be this person because self-ownership gives them that extra authority in this case but that's working like i say with with the community i'm like well you know because what is a community it's just an arbitrary construct the individual is something we're agreeing on is not an arbitrary construct we're agreeing already that every individual has a right over themselves and and the parental rights i have as guardian over my child come from that the community has no such claim you know so it's i think you put a little too much emphasis emphasis just on property right because uh, we had another fellow on our show named uh, Bob Wenzel, and he had a uh, p- sort of private property society, and his, uh, to sort of summarize his position, is, look, what we need is private property, and, and once we establish we who's the owner of the property, that resolves everything. 
And um, people could refer back to that Peace Radicals episode, and I think they would see exactly why. Simply identifying who the owner of the property isn't enough, right? Like in my example with Andy, it's clear I'm the owner of my property, and he's the owner of his property, yet we still have a dispute. The question is whether Andy is violating the rule by creating a substantial risk of harm to my property or people on, on my property. This issue of nuisance... Um, just personally, you know, nuisance can be defined as I don't like that purple house across the street or I don't like the business, the prostitution business they're running in that house across the street. We, we, can, we um, freedom types look more to trespass law than nuisance law. And so in the case of the airport, what I would say is it's not that they're a nuisance. They're a trespass. They're trespassing sound onto my property. They're, they're creating loud noises. That's a trespass. How I would resolve that is how I would resolve every trespass. Either stop doing that or buy an easement. So maybe what you do with the airport is you say, look, uh, uh, the community has decided that the noise you're creating is worth, uh, I don't know, $100,000 a year, and we're going to take that and divide it out by every single person who's got this noise trespass down to the level of what we lawyers call de minimis, where, okay, you can hear it, but... You know, it's like hearing the birds chirping. This is not actionable. Uh, we're just not going to recognize this type of a trespass because it's sort of like brushing against someone in an elevator. Yes, it's a trespass, but it's too small to be actionable. And again, the world isn't perfect, right? And even our uh, the rule that we love, the principle that we love, it doesn't get you to the right answer 100% of the time. And in my book, I talk about this. This is why we have issues surrounding the notion of jury nullification and even when the right thing to do is is to violate the rule, which comes up in some some circumstances. It's not perfect. What we're trying to get to here is a more free, more peaceful society. And, and again, this is why I think that you don't have a right to your personal interpretation of how the rule works. What you do have a right to is have ensured that at least a reasonable construction of that rule is going to be imposed on us. So basically, I, I think, Andy, you've probably heard enough from the two of us. Matthew, respond to that, and then I want to hop in. i got a lot of questions. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I do want to hear what Andy got to say, but I mean, I have, I'm familiar with Bob Wentzel because I've spoken to him a couple of times yeah. in his private property society. And it, one aspect that's similar to my to uh, my conversation with you, which was with him, is like, and similar to a lot of what I've got to say about what David Friedman talks about and what Walter Block talks about, all of these ideas, I'm like, I'm fine with them within this within the realms of this peace agreement that I pr propose. Like, what what Robert Wenzel proposes. I would oppose it if it wasn't within the realms of the non-aggression principle and under those terms of peace, but I would be fine with it if it was within those realms. The communities you talk about, I'm fine with them within those realms and I'm not fine with them without. The court systems that Walter Block talks about as good arbitrary methods, again, I'm fine with them within the realms of the non-aggression principle and I'm not without. If they And for me, the, the problem is, is like when you talk about, oh, individuals don't have the right to this, you know, to dictate this higher authority, it's like, well, then they don't have the right to delegate that to a group that they call the community. You know, this is my problem, again, coming back to, I don't want to repeat myself, but my, but just a sort of, uh, yeah, clarify exactly where my issue is, is what I'm saying is, is like, both of us, both of what we're proposing requires our black and white standards and our universal standards and a way to kind of have that universalized. Both of what we do need to do that. And then we both need an approach for the gray area. What I'm saying is, is the same principle can 
dictate how we approach the gray area. It doesn't tell us exactly where we draw the lines, but it can tell us like how we approach it with regards to who can draw the lines in most situations. Uh, and my point is, is if we if we stay as close to that is as humanly possible, and that's all we can do, and that's the same thing with the reasonable certainty thing, that all, all the time we are always acting the best as we possibly can within the realms of our rights as self-owning individual. And my problem with the community idea of giving them that arbitrary authority, and it, I don't see how it's not anything other than arbitrary, even though it's only a small amount. It's like a tiny little bit, but it's that tiny little bit of a compromise to what we're what we're talking about and the reason why i put it so passionately to you is not just because obviously it's slightly different to where i'm going because there's so much in similar with our projects and there's so much that i think live and let live has right um not just in the ways that it's similar to the nations of sanity but even the ways that it's different in the ways that it goes for those aspirational values and beyond that basic you know and keeping that spirit going to that higher level which i do also support like i like the community ideas i like the cause but I don't think they have the authority to dictate within the grey. I don't think self-ownership gives them that. And I think we can work a system where we stay more faithful to self-ownership. Okay. Sorry, I'll... I'd like to sneak in one more thing before Andy gets his treatise going here. <laughs> you know, um, just one observation, as you pointed out. We both, you're trying to be very, very precise with whether or not we can enforce the rule and determining whether there's a violation. I certainly appreciate that. But, we'll, but we don't we both have some compromise in an area we're both stuck with, which is trying to figure out what's in the gray area to begin with, right? So let's say, just to keep a clear one, say we talk about the age of consent. I, I, I recklessly threw out 14 as the bottom of the range. But can we say beyond a reasonable doubt that it's not 13 or 12 or 11? I mean, is there ever a line that we could say beyond a reasonable doubt this is the edge of the where black becomes gray or where white becomes gray. And I'm just simply saying back to you, I don't think that we have that type of precise accuracy to define either the, the border between the black and the gray or the gray and the white. And if you're going to concede that, right, which I think you, you have to concede that, then why can't we use the same sort of imprecise standard in the gray area to say, look, you get a reasonable construction and we move on? I guess that's all I had to say before, Andy, unless you want to respond Matthew to that. respond to that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief because I obviously want Andy to come in. But um, my point on that is we can draw a line because, we, we like, whatever we do, any conversation we have and, and any idea we talk about, we need a basic consensus of reality. And when it comes to like distinguishing a child and adult, we use the definitions of either to draw that line. I mean, I use I use the metaphor when it comes to the gray areas, and this works for 80%, but it works for all gray area issues, of the desert and the grassland. And I use the desert as the representation of definitely in that violation, and the grassland as a representation, a representation of definitely not a violation of the non-aggression principle. And then geographically speaking, Speaking, if you walk from one to the other, you've got this in-between area, and that represents quite nicely also like the child to adult situation as well. My point is, is oh god, my mind's making me. You've got to find it beyond a reasonable doubt spot to to differentiate between the desert and the grassland. Right. Okay. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Um. So what I'm saying is, is we have our distinction that helps us do that. Like we have a definition of what the desert is and we have a definition of what the grassland is and how they're different. The reason why we have this gray area in between is because it's an area where there's features of both in existence. There's a little bit of grass, but it's arid. There's a little bit of de patchy desert, but it's you know not completely just sand. You know, My point is, is when we're in the desert, 
because we know what a desert is, because we've already defined that ahead of time, we can say that when we're only surrounded by sand and there's no grass, then we're definitely in the desert. And when we're only surrounded by grass and there's no sand, we're definitely in the grassland. That's how we draw those lines. And the same thing with how we define a child and adult. Because someone could say, well, child and adult itself is an arbitrary thing. But we're, we're already working on the basic consensus of reality that we're accepting there is such a thing as a child and adult. You know, because the thing is, is we people can, and probably will, scrutinize details to the point of dissolving all boundaries of reality. You know what I mean? Like I say, that's why we have to have a certain consensus of reality that we're working on. We're working on the reality that there is such a thing as a competent adult and a non-competent child and the distinction between the two. Once we've done that, then we can draw lines and say, okay, at this point, there's no characteristics of an adult. This is a child beyond doubt. And at this point, we can say there's no argue you know what i mean we, when there's an actual argument to be had and we can concede there is an argument even if our our own kind of more subjective preferences think well we should still you know like you know in my mind really a 17 year old is still a child really but i can understand the argument there's there's a lot of arguments for why you could say they're an adult because there's a lot of obviously physical development that's already taken place and it's almost complete and and all the rest of it you know so there's an argument to be had but Below 14, there's not much of an argument to be had because any development towards being an adult has only just begun. It's not even sort of like, you know, halfway through in most cases. I know there's exceptions. I know there's like some tribes, for example, that have lived like that for generations where they've married earlier and they've been they've observed, like, for example, as a result that there's been physical development. earlier. It's not an exact science. I will grant you that, which is why we are we are we can't escape subjectivity 100 percent that's why the best we can do is work on this reasonable certainty upon this most universalizable standard that is as, as objective as we can possibly make it and like i say we can't do more than that but the problem is is when we let start going into the gray areas and start arbitrarily assigning authority to groups that we call communities or in the case of what walter block advocates courts who've got this extra authority that's beyond the authority that i have even to the point of stepping beyond my authority as a parent and saying no 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 this gray area well they're not even saying it's black and white they're just saying it's gray area we're going to come in and dictate potentially take your child you know it's like not only does that strike me as wrong on a instinctive level which is not the way to have the debate but you know it hits me there as well but also on an intellectual level just looking at it logically from what we have a right to do as self-owning individuals if we all get together and call ourselves a community why does that suddenly give us right to say within the gray area what like i say what the, the black and white area is a separate problem and it's not not a problem but it's a problem that both our movements have and i do think again the only way we can do that is approach it as objectively as possible and as reasonable i mean one of the reasons why i call it nations of sanity you know we've all got reasons behind the names of our project i call it nations of sanity because that's what i'm talking about we can't escape subjectivity completely but we can be as objective as humanly possible to what we would call sanity it's sane for sane people to argue that 15 16 17 year old are they child adult it's not sane when we're talking eight and nine year olds and it's not sane when we're talking you know so that's what i'm talking about eventually the accusation of subjectivity can be pointed at us we can't escape it completely eventually but we can minimize it to the absolute minimum and and be as objective as absolutely possible and i that's where i feel that we we separate with this community versus um 
you know, on the gray areas. All right. Well, I'm going to hop in here at long last. Matt, first of all, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, and giving your position and, and defending it very well. Yep. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, just kind of at the onset of the of the conversation, trying to understand what really the difference in your opinion is, because it is kind of a nuance here, yeah. right? Um, it's it sounded at the offset. You kind of framed it in terms of we, well, we just disagree on which burden of proof to use when defining the black terms and and the white terms, right? Um, and in that sense, if that's if that was all that the nature of the disagreement was, my gut reaction is that I'm very very partial to Matthew's position. Um, his point that okay, well, if we can intervene and try to stop somebody a violation of the three LP, for example. Um, and we don't apply the exact same standards that we do on the criminal code. Aren't we acting with criminal recklessness and trying to stop that? If I walk into Andy's property because I'm 94% sure I'm less something less than beyond a, a reasonable doubt uh, that uh, he's endangering me, but I'm going to go use force against him. I'm going to go stop him from doing it. Um, aren't I acting with criminal negligence? And I think that point is really well taken. But before we get into kind of the nuances of both of your positions and a bunch of questions I have about the numerous examples that we just went through let me attempt to completely trivialize the importance <laughs> of your disagreement because my first thought you know while we were going through this was how pragmatically if we were in a society that was properly calibrated around the live and let live principle how often would this actually be a problem and let me explain why I'm thinking that because if the difference is, well, okay, we should, you know, th there should be something called a community that sets standards and we have agreements and everything like that versus, okay, they sh it should all be individual interpretation. My first thought is, and, and we've established very clearly, we, everybody here believes that these kind of individual, I should... Um, I think, okay, what uh, Matthew calls them is local agreements. Everybody is in favor of local agreements. Heck, even Matthew would be fine about complaining or not complaining about the nuisance of an airport if you move to it, um, if it's clearly stated in the agreement that, hey, yeah. just want to let you know there's a lot of noise and maybe that's why you're getting a better deal on the property yeah. rate is because there's this loud freaking airport next door. Even Matthew's fine with that as long as everything's voluntary and clearly stated. So my, in my initial thought would be, the successful communities are going to be the ones that have a lot of these types of agreements, That's a right. lot of these local types of agreements. Yep. The successful communities are going to be the ones that have an agreement about how to deal with people who are storing volatile chemicals and things like that on their property. Um, short of uh, we storm their house with pitchforks and, and axes and we steal everything from the house and hope that it's fine, right? We would have something in a successful community like an injunction mechanism or something like that in order to resolve these types of disputes short of stopping them uh, with force. Mark, but, you look like you want to respond. Yeah, because I think what you're positing is more like an HOA situation. And that's fine. If you move into an HOA and they say, hey, just just FYI, here's the rule. Don't paint your house purple. Well, and, and that that it doesn't violate the principle is not something we're hearing about. You agreed. So that's not a problem. But the issue is when you move into the community, there's not an HOA. But that's my point. The successful communities are going to have the HOAs. The successful, the ones that are going to shine in competition Maybe. are the ones that are going to have lots and lots of these little individual agreements. Why? 
for the exact same reason we're talking about. So it's going to ensure everything runs smoothly. So People's you, property rights aren't getting unjustly or recklessly violated. They're going to have lots of these little agreements. Yeah, right? and so presumably, even if you're in one of these areas where you've agreed, there's probably a section that says, look, if something comes up we haven't specifically agreed to, here's what we're going to do. Matt Sands is going to decide the resolution, and, and that's all easy to handle. There's no problem there at all. But there are lots of communities where there is no prior agreement, where there is no HOA. And they're going to be less successful, and my point is, without even engaging the merits of either of your positions right now, I'm wondering, in in a society that's calibrated around the live and let live principle, how often we're going to have this dispute, given that the successful communities are going to have lots of mechanisms to deal with stuff like this. Just at the onset, I don't think that this might be less of a prominent problem than either one of you. Yeah, and I agree with you, and and I credit Matt for this, because he got me thinking about this, and I thought, you know, there's enough room in the live and let live tent for totally different approaches on this point. This is not a major disagreement here, which is why I was inspired to write this chapter. I sent it to Matt, but unfortunately, he didn't have enough time to review it. But I I would welcome Matt Sands and encourage Matt Sands to be part of the Live and Let Live community and to write a critique of the the what I'm presenting and say, no, I think there's a better way to deal with these problems. Matt, do you have a response to my, uh, my first initial impact that this is not likely to be a very prominent problem in a Live and Let Live society? I pretty much agree with everything you said. I mean, I, I and perhaps I'm looking at it in a slightly different way, but I mean, I feel like it kind of um, supports a little bit my position, though, because as you, because for me, I, I feel like I feel like the reason why Mark wants to give that authority to the communities with the grey areas because there's a lot of reasons in his head why it would work better that way. And I actually agree with a lot of those arguments, you know, like, and which is why I agree with a lot of what you said about like the successful communities will probably do this. But my point is, is self-ownership doesn't give them the authority to impose that. And my point is, is the arguments that Mark makes as to why this would be a better way to go is an argument for why we don't perhaps, apart from the fact that self-ownership, I'm saying, doesn't allow us to impose it. I'm also saying that we don't really need to impose it because it kind of sells itself as a way to run things. I mean, it's like, let's put it this way. If we had our Nations of Sanity revolution tomorrow, um, or live and let live um, uh, revolution tomorrow, they're both very similar. So like I say, it's not until you get into these minutia that I've noticed the difference. My problem with Mark's version is that my community might say, okay, well, then now they've got this authority and I haven't agreed to that. Now, if my community comes and said to me, look, Matt, hey, we'd all like to all understand, we understand it's the parent who ultimately decides the grey area, but we think our community would work better if everybody knew the age of consent. If we all had a, so, you know, as long as it doesn't offend you, do you mind if we'll just have the same one? Do you want to be part of that? Okay. You know, that's a good selling point because there's good reasons why that would be a good idea. But if I turn around and say, no, thanks, I'll decide when my child is of, of age. Thank you very much. Up until, again, within the grey area, let me stress, I'm not going, you know, they can't go beyond the black and white universe. And that's why it's important that we have this black and white. I mean, one of the things that me and Mark and our projects are united on is the need for that black and white limit. Because whether you're saying that the individual's decide the grey areas themselves, you know, based on self-ownership, or whether you say that we can let communities decide and that can work, either way, we need to have these universal black and white limits that neither 
can step outside of. Isn't this a concession to my position? Because when the parent says, look, I, in our culture, eight years old is is always been recognized as the age of consent. And who are you to tell me that that's unreasonable? And wh- why would you impose your views on me? Who I think I'm within the gray area still. I mean, so... To me, there you still have these kinds but, of problems. But as he pointed out earlier, disagreement but, about that, though. Yeah, well, as Sorry, he also on. pointed out earlier, just saying to defer to the community rather than the, that, rather than the individual parents, is just kicking the can down the road. You can imagine, based on a true story, there might be a community in uh, the United States where they think marrying multiple fourteen and thirteen-year-olds is just fine, and the hundreds of people in the community all think that's fine. Whenever you're saying, "Well, we should," you know, it's. It's not enough to defer to the parents. We need to defer to the community because there might be bad actor parents. You might have a bad actor community. You're just kicking the can down the road. Well, one. And, and, and the way I deal with that is is our system of federalism. There needs to be a higher court that says, hey, sorry, uh, that this community decided eight years old is the age of consent. We're not going to recognize I'm, I'm that. I'm glad you brought that up. Because but both this is our something... projects have that, though. Sorry to interrupt, but both of our projects have that. That, what you're saying, that safety method to stop the community going beyond is the same safety method that we have to stop the parent going beyond. We're talking about who has the authority within the grey. And I'm saying that self-ownership clearly gives that to the parent. It doesn't give it to the community. Okay, I understand. Yeah, I mean, that was, and I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to uh, pick your brain, Matt, on in a society, if you could have one that's perfectly calibrated to the little net live principle, you know, you kept talking about this kind of dichotomy, and I want to talk about this and understand it a little bit more, but the dichotomy between the universal agreement, which I think is what you're talking about, applies to those clearly black and white, and then the local agreements, which is how we resolve the gray issues. Who enforces these things? Who enforces? So uh, talk about your, I guess you just referred to um, a system of federalism that's similar to the one that kind of Mark imagines in a live and let live world. Who enforces violations of these agreements? At what point can, let's say that we have in that example that I gave, a bad actor community where they're marrying multiple eight and nine-year-olds. What's the mechanism to go in there and stop them from violating those those principles? Well, um, I mean, there's there's two ways I look at this. There's what we have the right to do, and then what is a good idea and the best way to do 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 you know to go ahead within that of realms of what we have the right to do. So what we have the right to do is what this universal peace agreement would dictate. So like in the case of the eight year olds or whatever, whether it was the community or the parent, it's black and white. We have the right to step in. Now, setting up the mechanisms to step in. I mean, like you know. The thing is, with the law enforcement, obviously, we still need the diligence to enforce it. You know, this is just how law should run. Now, how we should do it, I think we should have collectives like communities, like what Mark talks about. I think we should have them connected through this peace agreement and unite. So even though they're different collect, you know, communities and all that, as long you know, we're all kind of connected by this agreement of this kind of like a little bit like the federal system where you have this overall. Uh, you know, overruling thing, but instead, all that, but instead of a federal government, you've just got this peace agreement that sets out kind of what is and isn't the term. So, I mean, there's no magic, there's no magic um, wand that uh, say that this is how it's going to go. And it's, you know, like, you, like if you say, like, for example, if we had an, a live and let live revolution in America, but not in Saudi Arabia, what do we do about all the NAP violations happening in Saudi Arabia? It's like, well, that's a more complicated question. What 
what we have the right to do is not a complicated question. What we have the right to do is to use force against all the people violating the NAP in defense of all the people that are having their rights violated. So if we had the technology, for example, like if we had a super advanced alien race, I think Mark used this example and I have myself as well. If you had a super advanced alien race backing you up militarily that they could just easily put the aggression exactly where it needed to go to enforce these laws exactly where it needed to be enforced. If you could do that, then you would not be violating anybody's freedom as long as that's all you were doing. Um, but again, within that black and white, that's why I say you need this universal black and white standard to make sure that that is what you are indeed doing, because then you step into the criminal recklessness you know, when you go beyond that. So um, the specific mechanisms, I, I mean, I do have ideas on, on how we have 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 like you know voluntary collectives and they're not that dissimilar to the communities that you present through the live and let project and they're not that dissimilar i mean one of the reasons why i'm so keen for our projects to work together going forward is because we are so similar and, and we are working towards and we do need that it's all very well having this but we need to be able to enforce that we need to have communities we need to have public serving police forces i don't trust it all to the market of private security for example you know uh, but again that's another thing that i often stress you know it's like just because, um, I mean, I have a chapter on my website called Voluntary Socialism, um, and I hope the, the meaning behind that would be pretty self-evident. But it's the idea of saying, look, we can still have these communities that Mark's talking about, and all of the arguments he's laid out in this video about why that would be a good idea for how we should um, decide the grey, a lot of them, I 100% agree with them, and I would use those exact same arguments when I'm presenting the voluntary collectives that I say that we should establish. I mean, the most practical way to do it in a real world, if we were to have this sort of revolution, like, you know, today or tomorrow or whatever, is to simply, you know, establish this peace agreement and literally convert the governments into voluntary collectives. So tomorrow we all wake up and carry on as usual, but now we all have our individual guaranteed rights. This government is no longer a ruling entity that has any power to violate our rights. It's just the collective that we all have, say, equal ownership of it, what's valid, you know, valid to own. Um, and you just carry on from there. It's just what, what I'm saying is, is it's like, and people might have better ideas than that on exactly how we go about it. Oh, actually it'd be better if we did it this way. My point is, is okay, that's up for debate and discussion but for me what's written in stone certainly from the point of view of the nation's insanity project the only thing that's written in stone is what the law is and how the how we best go about making sure that's enforced equally and diligently apart from making sure we are, are true to it in its proper form and understand that it comes from self-ownership and always use that as our guiding way of uh, um, you know, dealing with the black and white versus grey and all of that sort of stuff, um, then exactly how the best way to police our streets and the best way to police other communities even, if we think that they're going over, that, stepping beyond, you know, the grey area and going into the black and white and stuff, or, or dictating black grey areas to people when they don't have the authority, which is a black and white violation, even though it's dealing with grey areas, if you know what I mean, because, like I say... And to use the real world example, if the community steps in and violates and says, no, we're dictating the gray areas of how you dictate your child. So here's your false vaccine and and and, and we're going to send her off to do porn or, you know, at 14 against your wishes as the parent, you know, or marry her off or whatever, you know, and all of those sort of things. What I'm saying is, is then that is a black and white violation of the non-aggression principle because they've taken in and violated my right of parent and my duty of care. And, you know, so, so I, it's like, like you said, there's a lot, this would actually come up as a problem a lot less, I think, 
I, I do think it would come up a lot less, but I think that also supports why we don't need to have this arbitrary authority given over to what we call communities. And we should simply say, no, no, it always comes back to self-ownership. And these communities are a good idea, which is why we should set them up, which is why we should get together as self-owning individuals and do that. And that's why those communities will flourish and the ones that don't are going to have problems because all they will have is the, the, the more universal agreement, which still provides them basic protections from the black and white violations, but it doesn't give them those higher standards that most of us would want, which is why I think that Mark's communities and what the Live and Let Live project presents sells itself in a way that doesn't need and also shouldn't allow this little bit of arbitrariness, which has been kind of snucked in with the community thing. Matt, I'm very partial to your suspicion of placing power in a community to change rules and do switcheroos and decide standards and everything like that. This is where a big point of, of us selling this message is communicating the fact that uh, you don't get to violate the rule even if you're a group, whether you call yourself a government or a local community, which, you know, libertarians and freedom-minded people like using that term a lot. Uh, but of course, every single time that there's a collective that we kind of blindly put power in, there's that slippery slope chance that it could lapse into uh, non-freedom. And I think that that's uh, uh, your concern here. And I am very partial to your skepticism. Um, so pragmatically for me, I just um, there, there's so many different questions that would need to be answered here that, um, you know, as, as we went through so many different kind of individual examples. And all I'm thinking is when I move to a community, I think that that community, if it's a successful community that is going to be the type of one that um, that I want to move to, well, very likely they've already figured out how to deal and how to arbitrate with most of these issues in advance. So I, I think that your guys' um, uh, disagreement is more of a philosophical one. And I think that um, there's, good, there's good points on both sides. But I think in order to really um, to sell people on these, on these um, uh, concepts is we've got to give them pragmatic, here's what it would look like, right? Here's what this kind of a community would look like, which is why I'm more focused on that. When I, when I want to know whether it's a good idea, whether it's something it's a good idea, um, I, I really do also want to know the um, not only the philosophical underpinnings of why you justify uh, how it looks, but also just what's life like in the, in the daily um, in a day-to-day in, -day in this kind of a community. So to kind of up the scale a little bit, because you were talking a little bit about, um, you know, on a national level, when we're talking about nations, you gave the example of uh, maybe there's a bad actor state out there, uh, a country or a nation that wants to violate, maybe doesn't subscribe to these principles, uh, or maybe then su subscribes to them, but then uh, enacts a bad faith construction of them, right? You can imagine that if uh, there was a country that said, oh, yeah, we're all about live and let live. That sounds great. And uh, our construction of the live and let live uh, movement is that, uh, you know, homosexuals should be thrown from rooftops or something like that if they get married or um, women shouldn't be allowed to uh, vote or something like that. Say there's a bad faith, faith uh, construction. What's the mechanism on a more global uh, scale to enforce these? You know, and I'm using the big scary E word there to enforce um, the live and let live principle or the non-aggression principle on a, on a more global scale from your position, Matt? Well, I mean, it's, it's really just about, take, again, taking a subjective approach or as objective as we can be. So it's like when, people, when you've got these bad faith um, interpretations, I mean, th there's two things that it, it depends on. It depends, obviously, on us agreeing on the concept that everyone has right over themselves, but it also it depends on a basic consensus of 
reality that we can all kind of agree on you know like cyanide is poisonous if i put that in your drinking water i'm aggressing against you you know what i mean it's kind of like something like that it's like that's nice and simple and easy um if someone said well i believe cyanide is actually a lovely you know thing or you know it's just you know or like you know like the 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 religious fanatic who thinks that he's helping the gay person by killing them because he's you know they that, you know they often say things like that oh i'm actually i'm i'm protecting them from a greater you know we don't care about as far as we're concerned with all due respect to different cultures that's just their delusions we're dealing with objective science we're dealing with objective reality we're dealing with the you know some people say well self-ownership they might reject self-ownership they say no god owns us i mean even though a lot of religions still kind of allow for self-ownership in the sense of saying that god gave us free will and kind of gave us self-ownership you know so even them can they can kind of work with the idea of self-ownership even if they think that it was given to them by god but let's say they don't let's say they have a construction of it. it's different okay then they've got a different this is a little bit like disagreeing with us on the black and white you know it's like we have to draw the line somewhere this is why there's this importance and this is an importance that i think both our projects recognize the importance of this line in the sand where we say okay there's reasonable different interpretations and what have you for both reality and how we uh, interpret this principle of um, of non-aggression but there's a limit to that differing interpretations and this is where we're drawing our universal line and this doesn't presuppose every exact scenario like we can't predict every scenario it's like okay, in this situation this would happen in this situation this would happen it can only give us like the like the the guiding principle if you like of, of, of how we approach it and then it's left to our interpretation of reality and when you've got people actually disputing reality like say let's say similar to this pandemic but let's say got even worse to the point where people were saying okay well anyone who doesn't get the vaccine even if they don't come near me is a danger so to me therefore i'm justified in forcing it on them you know something like that for example then you're having a disagreement over reality then you're having a disagreement over the black and white it's not a gray area dispute because my thing is is like look the gray area should be something we peacefully negotiate but the re reason why we draw that line for the black and white is because that's not peaceful negotiation time that is where we actually have conflict and if we can't get together and have a universal black and white standard of both this principle and the basic reality that we're applying it to then we've got no hope for nothing you know but i don't think that's a mean feat to have that but you know like we, we apply it in all of our lives and all right now everything d d depends on a very basic understanding that you're you and i'm me and we can we can work that for the most part you know so i don't think it's beyond us to create a universal standard just like we have a universal understanding that the world you know there are flat earthers out there and you know and all the rest of it but we have a basic understanding of physics we agree you know but people can pick the holes out of anything i mean and they can do it it's not just bad faith people that can do it you know i mean i've had people talk to me about oh like well everything's you know there's no such thing as objectivity because everything's subjectivity and anyone that's dealt with quantum mechanics will see that even the basic laws of cause and effect don't seem to play out exactly the same and you know and photons are in two places at once and all of this and and it's like okay well we're not working on that scale of reality that doesn't even recognize individual people you know and everything's just energy and there is no rights and freedom it's all just you know or you could believe in a predetermined universe or something like that what i'm saying is is we're working on the basis that we're all self-owning individuals in this reality that we all have a reasonable universal understanding of that's kind of as objective as we can make it 
I mean, it's scientific, I suppose, in a way. We're, we're taking a scientific approach. Matthew, to I, I want to press you just a little Sorry. bit to engage yeah. um, to engage a pragmatic aspect of my question, which is enforcement. We have the Nations of Sanity Project, and so we're trying to make nations that uh, adhere to these principles. If there's a bad actor, pragmatically speaking, not philosophically speaking, pragmatically speaking, what does enforcement look like? So, in other words, we have a we have a nation that has a bad faith construction, or or just doesn't care, just doesn't accept the three L pieces. We don't believe in live and let live. Um, we we believe that we should we should be aggressors, and we're going to do that, and we're going to institutionalize it in our society. Um, extreme examples: there's like a genocide going on in the country. Uh, less extreme examples: there's extreme. Um, prejudice, hatred, and violence against a certain minority group, things like that. What does enforcement look like when you're dealing with it on a national scale, right? This, is always, this has always been an issue, and it's something that, um, you know, given that we're living in a global world now, given that we're in a global society, um, it's becoming a bigger and bigger question. And this is something that I think Mark is trying to address in his book in terms of, okay, how do we deal with um, the fact that we're a global society now? We're a global community now. And what if a, our next-door neighbor nation um, doesn't have a good faith interpretation of the live and let live principle and uh, enacts atrocious violations of it every day? When do we get to intervene? How do we intervene? What does it look like on a global scale? Well, from a rights point of view, we have the right to intervene as soon as they violate the non-aggression principle. From a pragmatic point of view, it's going to depend on other aspects. I mean, for example, if we, um, um, you know, like, for example, if we could topple a government that was violating the non-aggression principle and we can do so with, you know, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, because then it's like, well, what about collateral damage if we went, I mean, I suppose, I assume that's what you're asking, like, we've got, like, for example, if we've done like a military invasion on a neighbouring country that was a NAP violating one, um, how could we go about that? Is that kind of the essence of your question? Yeah, I, with regards to I think so, to, to like, Mar Mark's example, or Mar Mark's answer might be something, and I, I don't want to mischaracterize uh, it, Mark, but it might be something like, we need a global federal court, basically, we need a, uh, a court of nations that all subscribe um, nations can kind of go to to interpret whether or not the manifestations of, or interpretations of the live and let live principle are reasonably constructed and in good faith in country X, Y, and Z, and also may, might yeah. suggest remedies. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. I mean, I suppose the, the point I'm making, I, I don't mean to be evasive over the question, because no, that's a good idea. I mean, I could present that and say, yeah, there's, there's my answer, you know, but my, my point is, is like, there might be a better idea than that, but what I'm saying is, is like, I mean, that, that's a good idea. And that probably would be a way to do it. I mean, like I say, the voluntary collectives that I present with the Nations of Sanity Project don't sound that much different to the communities that mark, you know, apart from our little thing about the grey area, there's there's a great deal of parallels between what we talk about. Because, I mean, I, I make the same point. It's not enough to just have this peace agreement. You know, it's no good without enforcement and, and diligent enforcement of that. But there are going to be pragmatic times where, like, we have the right to intervene, but it's just not feasible because, like, you know, like, let's say it's another nuclear power or something, you know, or they've got that, you know, or, you know, it's a little bit like, for example, you know, someone's got hostages, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if you can take them out without killing all the hostages, then you can go ahead and do that. But if you can't without killing the hostages, then you've got to look at where your justification is. If the only people that are in danger are the hostages, then you can't obviously take them out to under the uh, ethos of saving them you know what i mean so it's like um so yeah i mean like the, what mark's talking about is probably very similar to a lot of the things that i advocate myself but 
um, I suppose it's only really just that stipulation with regards to the rules of the game, if you like, the the constitution, the peace agreement, however you want to describe it, that kind of sits sits above it. But it would depend on the specifics. Like if you gave me a specific scenario and said, well, what will we do in this specific scenario? There's a genocide going on in this country next door. What do we do? It's like, okay, well, what we can do within, within our rights is stop it and use the necessary, reasonable and proportionate force that, you know, required to do that. Um, if we start... Um, if we start acting rectusly and say like we start just like we nuke the whole country for example or something like that and start killing innocent people recklessly then obviously then we're stepping beyond the realms that's why there's always that proportionality if someone um if someone robbed took my robbed me of my wallet and we're running down the street i could chase them and use force to grab them and take the wallet back from them but if i started machine gunning them as they were running to a crowd and killed other people in the process then i'm stepping beyond so yeah but, yeah but does doesn't this just beg doesn't this just beg the question that we need somebody to be able to define in your example of whether it was proportional to nuke the entire country for example don't we need a global uh, definition or some sort of a global mechanism for determining what proportionality is, right? Or the, even a community mechanism. We, we might say, no, we think it was completely proportional to use that amount of bombs, and there might be a different country. We'd think that's disproportional. What's the mechanism for making an objective standard for this stuff? Well, what I'm saying is, is the overall, like the highest mechanism, the one that the, the ruling mechanism, if you like, has to be this peace agreement with this consensus of reality. So it's like, I mean, court systems and you know, like world courts and whatever would probably be a good, good way of arbitrating this. You know what I mean? But like, there may be a better way. It may be a better way to have councils, or it may be a better way to have like world courts that like. You know, televise and you just let everyone get involved maybe it's better you know people would delegate it there's all sorts of different ways we can get into the specifics but what i'm saying is 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 the how they go about it is just dictated by this by this this concept but so so when, when we're saying okay when like for example when there's a dispute over okay well what's the proportionate response here to this genocide for example and it's like okay well we we can use self-ownership says we can use force to stop these non-aggression principle violations but it has to be proportionate and necessary we you know we can't be willy you know we can't be recklessly harming people that for example again this is where that reasonable certainty comes in if we if like you know like and this would be a perfect example like with like war crimes and stuff like that a, a war crime could be easily defined because if you don't have reasonable certainty that the place you're bombing is not a hospital rather than a military base of the people that you have valid non-aggression principle rights to attack then you're acting with criminal recklessness just like if that's not the per if that person i'm not sure is actually attacking that woman i don't have the right to punch him in the face you know i need to have reasonable certainty that what's going on there isn't some game or something you know what i mean it's like it's that that's why we have that kind of standard it's not it's not perfect it's like it's just the best we can do I, I'm still I hope not, I'm not evading your question. I, I'm still, no, no, you're fine. I'm still not happy with any... I just don't feel like I got a response to my example with Andy as the neighbor in a situation where we don't have a prior agreement. Sure, if we have a prior agreement that don't store chemicals, no problem. We're in agreement there. Andy might be right. Who's maybe, there first? Maybe a... Well, I don't... To me, who's there first doesn't resolve the question. Um, but what Andy's saying, if we've got agreements in advance and maybe agreements become more important and we get and, and more popular, and that's great. But what about the situation where Andy says, I'm not signing any damn agreement. I don't care. 
I'm not part of anything. I don't know what the heck you're talking about with this live and let live principle or this non-aggression principle. I don't agree to a damn thing. I'm going to do whatever I want on my property. And we've decided now that, you know, this is sort of in a gray area. I mean, and what Andy's doing, I, I can't say beyond a reasonable doubt at 95% that what he's going to do is going to create an explosion. But I can say with 94% precision, what we in the legal world might call, I can bring clear and convincing evidence that Andy is creating a substantial risk to me. I think this gets to the heart of the problem. Under the nations of sanity approach, I got to suffer or I got to work something out with Andy. Hey, Andy, I'd like to talk to you about what you're doing on your property. He says, screw you. I don't like you. I don't want to talk to you in any event. Now what? under Under the Mark Victor approach, um, the community gets to decide whether he's actually creating an assist, a, a substantial risk. And if the community decides it's a substantial risk because we're in a gray area, then then the community can take action against Andy under a Matt Sands approach. Mark is stuck on his own. And if Andy won't negotiate, Mark is subject to that risk. And I think that that's a violation of the principle that I don't get redressed. And that's the injustice, I believe, in the Matt Sands approach. I think is a violation of the principle for you to move next to Andy and then start dictating to him over activities that he's already established. Okay, we you have know, a like- fundamental disagreement here. You're saying if Andy's been trespassing on my property for a long time, he has some continued right to trespass well, on no, the- we're talking about grey areas, remember. I mean, we're not talking but about... say there's nothing grey here. Andy's been trespassing... A- say he walks across my property every day because it's a shortcut to get somewhere else. And he's been doing that for five years uh no one's it's been a vacant lot nobody cares well, that's, that's that's different i'm sorry to interrupt but that's different i mean the, the, the there's two examples you gave there i mean the example you gave with the moving next to him and his explosives you feel are too dangerous or whatever like there you're moving to the nuisance what if i don't even know violate. andy hasn't told me about it till after i move in he says well, hey man yeah, come over like- and look at my explosive supply and i look and say holy mackerel this thing could this is really dangerous this could go off at any time now i've learned now what well, I mean, this is, again, this is a great argument for why we sh- should have these things ahead of time. We don't have it. Yep, argument. pretend we don't. Okay, we now don't. now get out. I know. Get I off know, of my is- critique, which is this probably wouldn't come up in real life very often. I think it would come up more than you think, now, frankly. Now, yeah, so, so. But my, my point is, though, is who's, where, where's the violation in you, you know, what I'm saying is like, because I don't understand where your problem is with the moving towards the nuisance thing. Like, I don't see how someone can move towards a nuisance and then complain about the nuisance. Well, I, I just know? took like, that out of the analysis. A, if it was a hidden nuisance. Now it's a hidden nuisance. I've taken that out of the analysis. I never had no idea when I bought the property that Andy is storing TNT right next to uh, things that produce. He's got a fireplace right there, right <laughs> next to his TNT, and the fuses are all over the ground. He says, Mark, my eight-year-old has been watching this when I do a fire. I go upstairs and do work. but So don't worry. I got it all under control. I learned how to store these things on YouTube. Right. Everything, everything's totally safe. <laughs> right. We don't have a prior agreement. I didn't know. Even though we don't agree on the coming to the nuisance, let's take that variable out of the equation. And now we hit the rubber hits the road. In Mark's scenario, I say, hey, uh, I go to, I take Andy to court and say to the judge, 
whether it's a private court or a public court, but I, the, the decision maker, and I say Andy is creating a substantial risk of harm to me and my property, but I can only prove it by clear and convincing evidence with 94% certainty and uh, not beyond a reasonable doubt. In the Matt Sands world, I think we're stuck. Yeah. I, I, I now have to be a victim of the rule because I can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, a victim of, of the harm that Andy is subjecting me to. Under my standard, I'm saying the community gets to decide. The community looks at it and says, you know what? We've decided that what Andy's doing is, under our community standards, a substantial risk. And the judge issues an order that says, stop doing it by five days from now or we're coming in and we're going to dismantle it anyways. Uh, again, I mean, because obviously this is assuming that there's no agreement with no the agreement. community on Andy's part. So why does the community have that authority? See, this because is because the community has decided, like every other instance, that it's the same thing the community says to the thief. The thief didn't agree. The thief is violating the rule. We yeah, say, but we're we... talking black and white there. I'm talking about the grey area. We've we've all agreed that we have this black and white. Because the thing is, when the I don't have a problem with the community enforcing black and white. Fair, fair enough, but now they're saying... their authority as self-owning individuals, because I have the authority to do that. But my problem with them in dictating the grey area is because now they're stepping beyond their authority as self-owning individuals. They're saying, no, we're not. You know? No, we're not. We're enforcing the principle the same way we enforce it on the thief. We've decided by a reasonable standard, or our standard, which is not beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the same standard we use for all civil cases preponderance of the evidence or maybe they decide clear and convincing i don't know but something less than beyond a reasonable doubt because here's why we don't need the same error rate in my situation with andy that we do before we put somebody in prison on a criminal case one question is about determining whether the rule is violated the other question is determining whether andy violated the rule such that we're going to put him in prison and before we do that let's determine if he's violated the rule so if we say to andy andy you are in violation of the rule stop with that uh, creating a substantial risk we've done that by preponderance of the evidence now Andy puts his middle finger up and says, screw you, I'm not going to change anything. Well, now he's taken to court and beyond a reasonable doubt standard applies where we have to determine whether or not Andy, after being informed of the law, what it is now, the community has decided the law is you can't store your stuff like that. If we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Andy knowingly violated that rule, Andy could go to jail or be fined or something well, the, like that. I mean, even more in your example that I give, I may say, uh, no, I'm not even going to court. Right. I'm not even going to allow – I, I don't reject care. the legitimacy yes. of your court. I'm right. not going to allow you to we take say, me into court. We say too bad to you. We get – I do not have to be subjected to violations of the rule, and Matt Sands' approach makes me stuck with that violation of the rule unless I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt – I think that's too high a standard well, in, in, not, in these not only Not only does it make you have to be subject to the risk of, of my conduct, but it makes it so you don't even have necess a, a, a way to redress the situation. None. Um, if the person just rejects, uh, no, I don't believe in the court uh, in a court system. You know, I, I roll chicken bones, and yeah. that's how I determine what to do with my life. And that, <laughs> that, in a nutshell, is the 
maybe it doesn't come up because I think in our world, probably it makes sense to do agreements in advance so we can avoid this. But in the situations out in the rural counties, wherever, where everybody rejects agreements of any types, whatever, these are still going to come up. And remember, not everything can be agreed on. Uh, Maybe there'll be an arbitration clause. So I tend to think I agree with Andy's initial point that the distinction that we're arguing about is is almost entirely academic and won't come up that often. Yeah, because hold on. Before Andy even moves, starts storing things, a successful community, when when I would have bought it, would have had a covenant running with the property that says, by the way, you're not allowed to store anything in here that's explosive or nuclear warheads or anything. And I think the community can impose this regulation as well and say, sorry, before you get to drive a truck through our community with hazardous explosives and this and that, here's the kind of truck you need. Here's the kind of training for the driver you need. Here's the kind of security you need for the stuff. I don't know. But you don't get to violate the rule, and the community gets to make rules about that. But with my problem is, is with what authority? Now, when we're doing it through a voluntary collective setup, you're giving, you know, like I say, it, it, what Matt, you're talking about sells the same authority that you Very claim. Cool. The same authority that you claim to tell the person who's acting in the black area, the thief. By that same authority, because he's still going to say, look, I don't accept your principle. I don't accept your property rights. I don't accept this and that. By exactly the same authority that we claim to in, to be able to enforce the principle, we can also interpret the principle and enforce the principle. But I'm not, I'm not invoking authority when I enforce the, a black and white interpretation. Why not? Of the yes, you are. Say I'm the thief. And I say, look, I don't recognize your claim to property rights. I don't care about this principle. I'm taking this because my views about the nature of reality is I own that for whatever reason. I'm a member of a group and God gave us uh, absolute and, and uh, permanent property rights on everything here. Whatever he's gonna, he doesn't recognize anything. You're saying sorry, even if you don't agree. We've we've got this theory of yeah, property, not, and you, we've got. Yeah, this. I am doing that, but I'm not sorry. I, I am I am doing that, but I'm what I'm saying is I'm not invoking any authority to do so. Well, I'm just I'm just I'm just fighting for um, my interpretation of reality, which you could say, well, that's all they're doing, and yeah, that's fine. But what I'm saying, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But what I'm saying is, is people can have delusional versions. like like my point is about this whole self-ownership thing is people don't have to accept it like it's not like like the morality of self-ownership isn't objectively true there's no such thing as objective morality right. but what there is but what there is is an objective standard of morality so what you can say is i can't say that morality exists i can't say that self-ownership is a fact to you but what i can say is if we accept self-ownership, and there's a big if there, because p- plenty of people can say, stuff your concept of self-ownership, I don't believe in it. But those same people will have absolutely zero cause for complaint when force is used against them, because they've already rejected the concept that would give them the cause for saying that their rights are being violated. And the people that accept the concept of self-ownership, if they're being logically consistent with that concept that they've now accepted, would then have to accept every implication of the non-aggression principle. That's a good just point. As two plus, just as two plus two equals four, yeah, some people might reject maths, but if we accept maths, then two plus two equals four, and we can all agree on that. If we accept the non-aggression principle, combined with a relatively objective uh, uh, consensus of reality, we can be, like I say, 
But the issue is not whether we can impose it. The issue is figuring out what it means. And and at the end of the day, what I'm saying is what you're entitled to. And I think the word this should be a goal of our movements. I would state it like this: the maybe the goal of the live and let live movement is to get at least a reasonable interpretation of that principle applied everywhere. Not my particular example, not just the absolute clear examples that leave this question in the middle, but a reasonable interpretation. And by definition, we're saying anything in that gray area is a reasonable interpretation. So let the community decide. And this way we'll get the actual best interpretation because they'll compete with each other for customers we call citizens and residents. And then people will, in a low transaction cost way, move to the next community if they don't like the reasonable interpretation selected in that community. I I see this as, okay, if you believe in the world there's an exact interpretation of the principle, then this is a compromise. But I don't believe that there's an exact interpretation of the principle. I think that uh, there are many things, anything in that gray area is reasonable. And I think that's as close as we can get to the proper interpretation of the principle by definition. And there, and if that's the case, then there's no compromise here. We're simply letting the lowest community decision maker, the, not the individual, because now we're going to have lots of problems, but at least the community in that area select from the reasonable choices. We're still saddled with to figuring out what's the gray area. We're still saddled with imposing this on people who don't agree. We're stuck with all that. It's not perfect. We're still saddled with the sometimes the right thing to do is to violate the principle. These are rough edges. And and I'm saying, look, to, to try to take a position that I'm being so pure that only when we conclude beyond a reasonable doubt can we enforce the rule, I think is trying to be sort of too precise in one area when we have all these other rough edges around the sides. Again, I respect the effort. I wish there was one true interpretation of the NAP. That way we could just, or the live and let live principle, that way we could just say, look, here's the one true interpretation. But we're living in an imperfect world. We're imperfect people who do imperfect things. And if I think one thing we could agree on, uh, if we could get to a spot where we could get at least a reasonable interpretation of that principle applied everywhere in the world, boy, would the world be such a better place to live. And gentlemen, we're running out of time, but Matt, I want to give you last word on that. Do you Please. want to respond? Um, yeah, well, just to say, really, that I agree with a lot more than just that. I mean, I think we agree on 99.9% uh, of, 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 of what we're talking about. And I, I, the only thing I would say is I don't think where we disagree is insignificant. Even though it's tiny, I do think it's significant because I think it's the importance of, um, I mean, just one final case for why I think live and let live should make this slight adjustment because it would be a slight adjustment like everything you said well let me just say I, I don't, I don't speak for live and let live right live and yeah, let, yeah. I, I give my interpretation I and I'm encouraging you and inviting you and I will put it up on our on the live and let live website write why Mark has got his interpretation wrong and as a live and let liver you you uh, advance a different uh, perspective on it maybe yeah, the movement yeah. is in the crucible right now we're yeah. forming all of these principles we this is why we're having these types of yep. discussions not only with freedom-minded folks like yourself but people who haven't been traditionally held those types of positions because we want to forge this thing correctly mm -hmm. so your your difference of opinion here is very well appreciated yep. but go go ahead and respond. sorry yeah, well, that's why I appreciate the opportunity to, to go through this, because I'm very much of the same mind. And that's how I've worked with my own project and how I've developed it through people scrutinizing and, and what have you. I just feel that, like, you know, I mean, funny enough, Larkin Rose has almost the same criticism of your project as he has of mine. 
which is that it's statist, <laughs> basically. Um, now, I, he won't debate me, just kind of give me a few Facebook messages and dismiss my project. But my issue with him is, is I think if he will have a proper debate and look at it properly, he will realise that his criticism of me, of this project, is a straw man. Because there's no statism to be found if he actually looked at it properly. It's all just based on self-ownership. Everything that's done is consistent with self-ownership. Even the collectives that we're talking about, they're all staying within their realms of self-owning individuals. My problem with... Uh, Mark's position is you're giving Larkin Rose's criticism of your project some validity because if he dives deep enough he can find an arbitrary assignment of power it may be small it may be localized to a small level but it's like you know it's like we go to the oncologist and it's like uh, there's a tiny little bit of cancer there small but it could grow back to use uh, I think you alluded to the fact that the problem with this is that you, the, when you allow it at all you open that door and it's a slippery slope and I'm sure there's a few more cliches I can throw in, but, you know, it's like, but you get my point, yep. you know, and and that's why I feel like, um, I mean, I still would love to, to debate Larkin Rose on this because I want to, because I think that if he actually understood it, he'd realise it's not the state, because he just reacts to the idea of law. And he doesn't like the word law. And, yeah, he doesn't like the exactly. word law. Exactly. Like I say, his criticism of your project is almost identical to his criticism of the Nations of Sanity project. Um, but like I say, for the most part, I think his criticism is invalid on both of our projects, but there is a little bit of validity to that criticism applied to your project if you allow communities to have that authority over the grey area. And I do think it's unnecessary because I do think everything else you said about why it would be a good idea to designate authority to that on in a way that doesn't violate self-ownership, where people voluntarily become part of communities and they say, okay, I'll agree to that. I'll agree to this age of consent as a parent, you know. But what we're understanding is, is that, it, it, that it still requires their consent as self-owning individuals. The only thing that doesn't require their consent as self-owning individuals is our enforcement of the black and white non-aggression principle, because then we're acting with that reasonable certainty which, as I say, is a standard we have in criminal law today. I know we have uh, what was a preponderance of evidence, but that's usually for civil cases rather than criminal cases. And that's usually because, and what I'm talking about is the standard of crime. This universal peace agreement, the NAP, the black and white interpretation, that is talking about crime maybe to different degrees of severity, but it is defining crime. Whereas everything else we're talking about, including the grey areas, that's more in line with the aspirational values. So I think Live and Let Live project is on the right path because that needs to be dealt with. And having these communities that, that instill these aspirational values and go beyond just the black and white is important for many of the reasons you've already argued for in this in this conversation. But my point is, is that's a great sales pitch for why we as voluntary individuals should voluntarily be part and build those communities in that way. But it's not an argument for why we should arbitrarily give quote unquote communities this authority Jeez. without that. You know, Matt, I sure do uh, share your twinge of suspicion on whether a, uh, a community should be given this kind of power and everything like that. I mean, that, that's that's where my gut reaction is. And what this great conversation. Yeah, what a great conversation. I feel like we could even dive 
you know, way deeper than we did into this. We'll do a part two. Yeah, we've got to do a part two at some point. But uh, excellent. Thank you guys both for sharing your positions on this really interesting issue. And uh, I'm almost completely convinced that this would never come up uh, too often in real life, but it sure is an interesting philosophical conversation. So, um, everybody, we've been talking to uh, Matthew Sands, and uh, why don't you uh, end uh, today by letting our listeners know where they can find out more about the Nations of Sanity Project. Uh, yeah, uh, website, nationsofsanity.com, uh, Facebook page of the same name, and YouTube channel are the main three places to get me at. That's where I put my content up. So, um so, yeah. All right. Fantastic. Well, this has been Attorney Andy Markintel and Mark J. Victor. And uh, check out liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more. As Mark mentioned at the top of the podcast, oh, man, there's a lot of things going on right now. Chapters popping up all over the world, events. There's a book coming out. Uh, and check out blogs. Hopefully we'll get some uh, competing opinions on there. Matt is going to uh, write a wonderful article that we'll post, I'm sure, about why uh, we're wrong in this area. And it'll be wonderful because that's what we're looking yep. for. We want all all the best minds in the freedom world working on this project. And we want your help, too. Don't sit idly. Be part of the solution, not the problem. Educate yourself on these issues and get involved. There's so many different ways to get involved. Mark, any final thoughts before we sign out? I just think it's a great conversation. I think that there has to be enough room in the pro-freedom crowd to allow for differences in things like interpretation. I think that maybe it could matter differently, but you know, on the other hand, uh, different communities could come to different conclusions in one could say we like kind of the nation's of sanity approach and the other could say we like this other approach and it's okay uh is it look wh- whether i lived in a world where what was imposed on me was a reasonable construction of the live and let live principle or what was imposed on me was only things that are determined beyond a reasonable doubt to violate the principle that's a heck of a lot better than what we're dealing with today ain't that the truth and you know this has been a big failing in the freedom crowd for so many years to see stupid little schisms that break out between i'm an anarcho Capital. I'm a voluntarist. Well, I'm this and I'm that. It's like we're all working on the same project here. And, um, you know, conversations like this one are, are so important. And yep. it's important that we come together. Uh, but these are very important topics. Guys, thank you for tuning in to this episode. This has been attorney Andy Mark until an attorney Mark J. Victor. We're the Peace Radicals. Peace. Peace.